Hello, everyone. Um, thank you all for joining us today. Uh, it's a real pleasure to see so many of you here. My name's Carmen. I'm one of the trustees at Conway Hall. Um, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce Natalie Fines for us today. I do have a little bit of blurb that I uh, saved to my phone, including a very salacious article in the Daily Mail, which was um, hilarious. <laughs> um, so middle class, I love it. Uh, right, here we go. So... Um, Natalie is a journalist and filmmaker. She's currently working in documentary filmmaking and has taught sex education and consent classes in schools, universities and youth centres around the UK. She writes for The Guardian and The Independent. You can buy her book at the back. David is selling them from um, Newham Books uh, for the bargain price of 9 99 today and he takes card and cash and you can also get it signed uh, by Natalie. Um, the format of today, we'll have the talk for about 45 minutes and then a short comfort break um, to use the loos. Uh, the ladies are downstairs, gents are upstairs. Um, we also have a disabled loo if you need. Um, and then we'll come back for a Q&A, which will take about 25 minutes, half an hour. Um, please note that this will be recorded for our podcast, which we haven't done much promotion for, but we're hoping to, once we get a few uh, in the bank, then we hope to start publicising that. So please mind your language. Um, and uh, without any further ado, please can we have a warm Conway Hall round of applause for Natalie. Hello. Um, thank you so much for coming. Um, it's really great to see everyone here. I'm going to start by just reading a short extract from the opening chapter of my book, and then I'm going to go over some of the ideas. Um, but please interrupt me and ask any questions or interject and bring your thoughts if you have anything. Um, so this is the first uh, few pages. I had my first sex education class when I was 11. We piled into the classroom and sat down in rows facing a tiny blank screen. We were mostly naive and almost entirely bored. When the teacher came in, she explained that we were about to watch a video of a woman giving birth. She reassured us that yes, we might feel a bit queasy, but not to worry because it was all very natural and normal and besides, this was how we all came into the world. She pressed play. Within seconds, one of the boys had fainted. He slid off his stool and crumpled, whimpering, into a mound of oversized blazer onto the floor. It was terrifying, the perfect contraceptive. The next and final instalment took place when I was 13. In this session, the school's agonized vicar muttered under his breath about teen pregnancies, the horrors of AIDS, and the very precise symptoms of gonorrhea. After initial preamble, he opened up the ominous black briefcase he brought along with him. Lo and behold, it contained, behind a very thick pane of glass, an intriguing selection of small plastic bags, white powders, pill packets, and green herbs. He awkwardly gestured towards the morning after pill, a bag of cocaine, a diaphragm, and a bag of weed. The briefcase was slammed shut, and we were dismissed. <laughs> As I would discover researching for this book, most young people in the UK might have had sex education at school, but school was not where they learned about sex. Some might have been taught by religious leaders or family members, but the overwhelming majority were left to fend for themselves, asking sly questions to friends and older siblings, learning by mistake, looking this and that up online, and always, always finding excuse to scuttle away when the topic was breached by parents. Despite the torments, I presume that things were better than they have been in the past. 
Surely the awkwardness of my school's vicar was preferable to those vicars of the past, railing about sin, blindness, and the fiery pits of eternal damnation. Sex education has varied wildly throughout time and continues to vary around the world today. This should come as no surprise. The way that sex education comes to be taught, or indeed not taught, depends upon some very central questions. Take the idea of a young person. What does it mean to be young? Is it to be innocent, irrational, reckless? And what even is the role of education? Is it to teach something that should be left is it something that should be left to parents? Maybe it's corrupting to teach children about adult things. And what about sex? What is normal sex or good sex? Is it for procreation, for spiritual and religious ends? But what about non-heterosexual sex? And what about gender or marriage? An American school board member wrote in 1986, quote, there's an old saying that there are only two things for certain in this world death and taxes. A third certainly might be added, disagreement about sex education. Sex is extremely personal, arguably the highest form of intimacy of all, but it is also connected to a complicated web of forces outside of the self. From culture, religion, class, race, gender, all the way to the randomness of which constituency you grow up in and how much funding your school receives, sex is political. So yes, yeah, so Behind Closed Doors is a sex education book. Um, the idea of it was to write a book that was aimed at people that are usually seen outside of the age um, that would get sex education. Um, so it's part of the Outspoken series with Pluto Press, which is aimed at 17-year-olds and plus. Um, my idea was to take the traditional structure that a sex education might have. Um, so starting with topics that you discuss around the body, like anatomy and puberty, sex and gender, and then move on to the second section, which was on sex, so topics like consent and sexual violence, and finally finishing on um, kind of relationships and topics that are usually a little bit more complicated and left to so slightly older young people. Um, and behind all of these topics, I've thought about what are the politics behind it, so how have we got to where we are now? Um, and weaving throughout the book, I've also interviewed kind of hundreds of young people about their experiences of sex education and what they felt they had and what they felt was missing. Um, so the first thing that I really wanted to interrogate um, when I started writing this book was what the history of sex education had been. So I'm not sure how many of you know, but next year, um, this new legislation comes into place which says that it's compulsory for all young people all secondary school uh, students to be taught about sex education, which is really historic and it's never happened before. The last time that legislation came in to change sex education was 18 years ago. So that means that in that time, um, you know, Me Too's happened, the internet's happened, uh, the explosion of porn's happened. So in those 18 years, uh, sex education hasn't changed. Um, so in the first chapter, I wanted to look at what the history of sex education was to try and understand how we got to where we are now, and if it can help shed light on some of the topics. So I'm gonna go through that now, like some of the key moments in the history of sex education. Um, so this is a map of um, the countries that have been under 
that were under European control during the European colonialism. So the first um, global sex education that was ever implemented was alongside the European uh, imperialists uh, via the church. Uh, so as you can see, there's only, I don't know if you can see in this light, but the orange countries, which is just a few of them, I think it's only 10 that have never been under European control. Um, so, you know, even though it's true that many, many different countries around the world and throughout history have had an empire, um, when we look at this map, it's quite hard to deny quite what an impact, at least on our modern day, uh, this era of European colonialism had. So the European imperialism was about kind of resource extraction and building wealth. Um, it was about building an empire. But it was also about changing kind of values and changing the hearts and minds of colonized subjects. Uh, this is a quote from uh, César, who is a Martinique poet and politician. In his words, um, colonialism was a campaign to civilize barbarism built upon the idea of the overall superiority of Western civilization over exotic civilizations. Um, so what does this have to do with sex and gender? Um, around the world, we know that... Um, oh, back. Um, today, we live like, under very heteronormative, heterosexual... Uh, dogma where it's presumed that most people live in kind of nuclear families and that that's the main way that you can exist and can function in your romantic lives. But we know that that hasn't always been the way. So when a lot of the European travelers went, went to these kind of new lands, they wrote back with their experiences of what they were seeing in the different cultures and communities. Uh, so this is one account from an English traveler in the 1590s um, from his time in Angola. And he said, they are beastly in their living, for they have men in women's apparel whom they keep along their wives. Um, there's lots of examples where of societies and communities where they didn't kind of practice just exclusively heterosexuality. So this is a, um, a picture of two men uh, that were found in a tomb in ancient, e in ancient Egypt. I think it was discovered in the mid-60s. Um, and I've tried to pronounce their names, but I can't, so I'm not going to bother. Um, but people believe that this is like one of the first examples of a same-sex couple that were living kind of in cohabitation. And there was no shame. This was just on, this was found in a pyramid. Um, it's believed that they were kind of royal servants. Uh, there's no shame about it. They're depicted there quite happily. It's a celebration of, of their love. Um, this very good-looking man was the King Muanga II of Buganda, which is modern-day Uganda. Uh, he reigned from 1884 to 1897, and he was openly gay king. So this was at the same time as, uh, or just a few years later, than the, the very last men in England were hung. Um, or killed by hanging for under the anti-buggery laws which were introduced under Henry VIII. Um, so they were, ki they were killed in, I think, a few years before he came in, into power. Um, Uganda is now obviously known as one of the countries that has very stringent anti-LGBT rights, um, which it does. Um, but it's really important to remember this history because it was actually European imperialists through the teachings of Christianity um, who implemented some of the most homophobic legislation 
Um, so in Uganda, when it was colonized, there were anti-sodomy laws brought in by the English, um, as they were around the world, which was even recognized by Theresa May, who in 2016, um, at a Commonwealth meeting, said, that, uh, said this, as the United Kingdom's Prime Minister, I deeply regret both the fact that such laws were introduced and the legacy of discrimination, violence and death that persists today. So we can see that the sex education that was introduced and implemented via kind of European colonialism, and in particular the, here, the English, English colonialists, um, has had a huge impact around the world today. Um, but it wasn't until the First World War that we had the first national sex education kind of kick here in the UK. Um, so up until that point, because of kind of conservatism and fears around kind of corrupting youth, it wasn't really discussed about. But when it came to the First World War, it kind of became impossible to ignore because of the astronomical rates of STIs among soldiers <laughs> who came back from fighting on the front um, and were really ill and were also infecting lots of other people in the country. Um, so it's estimated that a whopping 5% of all British men that were enlisted into the army at some point in their time that they were serving would be affected by STIs. In 1916, one in five of all British troops that went into hospital in Belgium and France were there because of a venereal disease or STI. So that's including like trench foot, insomnia, um, or influenza, sorry, or any kind of injuries attached to kind of the conflict. So it was a huge, huge problem um, that I think the British government felt they needed to do something, they needed to act on it. So when these men came back from war, they were confronted with posters littering the streets um, of the major cities. Um, here's an account, actually, I'll go back to this one. So this is a picture from the Battle of Lu, um, which was in um, one of the first offensives um, of the First, first World War, and around 60,000 men lost their lives. And this is the account of one soldier um, of the night just before him and his comrades went over the front. So there are well over 150 men waiting for opening time, singing lusty songs. Right on the dot of 6 p.m., a red lamp over the doorway of the brothel was switched on. A roar went up from the troops, accompanied by a forward lunge towards the entrance. I suppose that subconsciously we wanted as much of life as we could get while we still had life. There's this quite kind of sad thing that, you know, a lot of men knew the danger they were facing. So sex workers were kind of all around on the front, um, I suppose, giving men comfort before, before the inevitable. Um, so when they got back, these men, very frisky men, came back to these posters which were plastering the streets of the major cities in the UK. Um, as we can see, this is presumably a sex worker or a loose woman. <laughs> um, and there's more. <laughs> so she may be clean, but pickups, good time girls, prostitutes, spread syphilis and gonorrhea. And there's one more. <laughs> Booby trap, syphilis, and gonorrhea. Um, so as you can see, who's being blamed for the rise in STIs and 
it's women, it's sex workers, um, obviously diseases, whether they're sexually transmitted or otherwise, can't discriminate on the gender of the person that's holding them. There's a lot of misogyny here, there's um, kind of these narratives around what women should be wearing, what women should be doing at the time. Um, and this transferred to the legislation, so in 1916, it was made illegal for sex workers to approach any man in uniform. And then in 1918, it was made illegal, it was made legal that police could approach women that they thought were sex workers on the streets and give them a forced uh, medical examination to check if they had um, an STI. Um, this uh, caused huge kind of protests, particularly amongst the suffragette movement, which at the time was really kind of burgeoning, and so much so that the law was eventually revoked. Um, but I think it tells us quite something quite important about these moments where sex education curriculums get put in, or there's a push for sex education, uh, combined with a moral panic, and which groups of people in society are most likely to take the blame. Um, so then we move into the 60s, in which there's huge kind of legislative changes, uh, mostly coming about from these kind of massive social movements from women and from the LGBTQ community. So this is the Stonewall riot in um, 1969, um, which kind of kick-started the gay liberation movement. Um, there was also massive changes in the way that women uh, were depicted in the media. His Hugh Hefner, surrounded by the play bunnies. Um, so this, this, these kind of like social cultural changes came about at the same time as a massive spike in the number of young people that were receiving education around the world. Um, so huge questions came about about how do we teach young people and do we teach young people about sex and sexuality? Um, but it wasn't really until the 80s and the AIDS crisis that there was a proper concerted effort from governments in the UK but also around the West to implement some kind of um, national sex education curriculum. Um, so there's images like this that were going around a lot of the time. This is a young man who's dying of AIDS surrounded by his family. Um, this is another quite famous image, really sad, of a couple, um, the man who also has AIDS. And as some of us here might remember, this, this kind of spike in the, uh, the AIDS crisis was also combined with huge homophobia in the media. Um, these are just some kind of examples of headlines. Um, it was called the gay bug, and it was thought that it was like a, a curse on Western countries because of um, the kind of loosening morals around sexuality. And this, in fact, impacted the kind of sex education that was had. How do I get to my... It's the plight of individual boys and girls which worries me most. Too often, our children don't get the education they need, the education they deserve. And in the inner cities, where youngsters must have a decent education if they are to have a better future, that opportunity is all too often snatched from them by hard left education authorities and extremist teachers. <laughs> Children who need to be able to count and multiply are learning anti-racist mathematics, whatever that may be. 
Children who need to be able to express themselves in clear English are being taught political slogans. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. Um, yeah, so in the midst of all of this kind of AIDS crisis and scare around uh, the spread of HIV, Section 28 was introduced, um, which I don't know how many of you know about, but it was a law which said that local authorities, it was illegal for local authorities to so-called promote homosexual lifestyles. And what this meant in practice is that local authorities also included schools, so teachers were not allowed to, um, by law, talk about different kinds of relationships. Um, I'm sure this meant in practice that many did, as many teachers did, but it was enshrined in law that they, they weren't allowed to. Um, and this law was only undone in 2003. So it shows quite how recent, like, all of the impact of this stuff is. Um, in the 90s, so this, the last kind of sex education push um, happened in the 1990s, and that was the sex education that I received and probably a lot of other young people here today. Um, and much like in the past, um, it, was, it was also informed by kind of scaremongering and narratives in the media about a different kind of societal fear. And in part, this was around teenage pregnancies. Um, so conservative politicians said at the time, Sir Keith Joseph, teenage pregnancies arising, so are drunkenness, sexual offences and crimes of sadism. The idea being that there's some kind of correlation between teenage pregnancies and kind of extreme crime or acts of sadism or violence. Um, I remember growing up seeing images like this in the media and retrospectively looking at it, it's, it was hugely classist, it was hugely misogynist. Um, it was mostly the, the kinds of people that were being spoken about were working class poor women. The implication being that they were in some way kind of burdened on the state. Um, and that you know they almost shouldn't be allowed to have children or they shouldn't be allowed to have procreate um, because of the burden on society. Um, these are actually from America, so then, but it was from the same time that Moral Panic, I just think they're completely amazing. Um, yeah, so this was a 90s kind of educating against like teenage pregnancies, these two adverts. Um, America is a different story when it comes to sex education. But this was one that was in the UK. Um, yeah, so we kind of, we land in the present. So next, as of next year, there's going to be these changes to legislation which say that sex education is now compulsory um, in all secondary schools. And primary schools now have to teach kind of relationships education. And this has taken a really long time to come in, and it's a huge win for a lot of campaigners and groups like Stonewall and um, kind of Liberty and other really brilliant kind of NGOs and campaigning groups have done a lot of work to get this on the table. And it looks like it's going to be really progressive, and um, hopefully it is going to be. Um, there's kind of two things I want to talk about in relation to it. I think there's been two main like, news stories that have come about. This one, uh, you may recognize, you may have read about it, is a school in um, Birmingham called Parkfield School. And I don't know how many people have read about this. So there was a, it was a primary school and the head teacher was teaching a course called No Outsiders, which was about 
um, kind of identifying different kinds of relationships that weren't just heterosexual. And um, this led to quite fierce protests from within the community and particularly the parents. Um, that then kick-started lots of similar protests in Birmingham and then all around the country. And so there's been a lot of resistance to this changes already. And the way it's been depicted in the media is that it was this Muslim community. So the fact that it was Muslim parents in a Muslim school has been really, really emphasized. And that this, the way it's been, the way it's been depicted is almost as if it's some kind of culture clash or a clash of civilizations. That there's this like fundamental contradiction between the values in the West of sexual tolerance, sexual liberation, and then that of kind of immigrant communities who won't, you know, quote, sort of get on board with the values in our society. So it's actually the way it's been spoken about in the media, you know, in the Daily Mail, in the Sun, which traditionally are not publications that would support kind of LGBT class rights. It's been depicted as this kind of culture clash. Um, I'll get back into that in a sec. But the, yeah, the second one that's come up a lot is the way that school kids are taught about trans rights. Um, so this is an organization called Transgender Trend, and they were printing out these stickers and handing them out to school kids and to teachers that would take them for, them, for the young ch children to put on their pencil cases and on their books. So it says they're, they're kind of an, a trans-critical or transitioning critical kind of group. Um, so you see the bottom right, it says... Children confused about their sex usually grow out of it. Um, um, what else to say? You know, it's okay for boys to, boys to play with dolls and for girls to play with trucks. Kind of saying, you know, just because someone, has an in, some, someone of one sex has an interest in kind of playing with things of the other sex, it doesn't necessarily mean that they need to transition. Um, so what we know in both of these cases and what we can kind of say as well, uh, kind of basing this on the his history and the story is that we know there's been a huge um, kind of culture change around sex and sexuality, kind of partly to do with you know, the rise in pornography and the Me Too movement. And there's groups in society that are kind of being caught up in the blame game about um, you know, how the va who's, who shares the values that we should have as a society and who doesn't. Um, with the case with the Parkfield School, we know that there are protests here, but there's also been huge resistance to the changes from other religious communities, like the Christian community, the Jewish community, um, and the secular community. And actually, there's many people, many Muslims, who are very, very tolerant of LGBTQ plus people and rights. And with, um, with the case of the kind of trans rights, what we really know is that it's actually young trans people who really need our support. Um, so there's around 50% of young trans people who've committed self-harm. 75% uh, or so of young trans people say they've experienced bullying in school. Um, and when we look at the statistics as well, it's actually not true. You know, one of the fears is that gender is this thing that you can kind of jump around in. So, um, you know, one day you decide you want to be a boy and then the other day you want to be a girl and then you change your mind afterwards. But it's not, it doesn't work like that. And when you look at the statistics... It's very rare for people to change their minds. And of course, there are instances where people do, but the media kind of really hones in on it. And it's kind of, there's lots of links to draw between um, the way that gay people were treated in the media in the 1980s 
um, where it was said that it was a kind of a lifestyle or a choice rather than an identity. Um, but there's other like issues really, you know, rather than fear-mongering and talking about these scare tactics, there are some really important issues that need to be uh, kind of tackled in schools. So this is one study that was done here, um, which found that over half of this group of people they interviewed didn't think that someone physically pushing them away meant no. Um, the same study showed that 60% of young people didn't read someone crying during sex as non-consent and that more than one in five people expected intercourse or other, other kinds of touching. So as you can see, there's also so many things that need to be discussed in schools and there's so many issues that young people need to be educated about. Um, and as much as we talk about um, kind of the role that teachers can play, there's also um, kind of other places that people can learn about sex education or consent. So in my um, book, In Behind Closed Doors, I've interviewed kind of hundreds of young people about the sex education they had. So throughout the book is these testimonies. And this was an amazing young woman I met um, called Faz. She's 17 years old. And she said this about um, her experience reading about the Me Too movement. Um, so she said, I learned so much from the Me Too movement. I learned way more online than from lessons in schools. I had no idea what consent was before, but now I feel like I can put up boundaries. A lot of religious speakers would never talk about this kind of thing. There is no way I would get my sex ed from them. I learned almost everything I know from the hashtag MeToo. One thing that's really struck out to me, and I, think it's still, I still think it's so crazy, that you'd expect, you just expect people at the age of 30 or 40 would understand consent. But Me Too show me that they don't, <laughs> which I thought was very insightful and um, really, really powerful. Um, so the book, I've, I've gone over topics, so the kind of first chapters on the history of sex education, but I've also gone through all the other kinds of topics that young people want to learn about today. So part of the way that I've structured the book was by asking them, you know, what topics do you feel you need to learn? What do you feel was lacking in your sex education? Um, and consent was one of them, but I also cover kind of pornography and um, LGBTQ plus rights and dating and sex and gender. Um, so maybe we can talk a bit about that in the kind of Q&A session afterwards. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, there was a, a phenomenal amount in there. So, um, so we're going to take a quick 10 or 15 minute break and then we'll be back for the Q&A portion. Um, I'll read out some blurb when we get there. Um, please do pick up a book um, at the back and uh, the toilets, the gents are upstairs, the ladies are downstairs and we've also got a uh, uh, gender new... Hello everyone, uh, thank you so much uh, for sticking around. I hope you all managed to pick up a copy of the book, I certainly did, um, and I hope you managed to get it signed as well, which I haven't done yet, I'll have to do that um, before we finish up this evening. So um, uh, we're gonna have a slightly different Q&A today and it'll be more of a general discussion as well as asking questions, um, because I just think there's enough of you that actually it might make a really nice and interesting uh, conversation. Um, so I would like to start with the first question, which is you know, part of the privileges of working here. Um, and uh, I guess um, I'm really particularly interested in this slide about the so-called gender critical movement, which I'm, uh, like, I'm very skeptical of, if I'm honest. I think it's, it is transphobia. But, um, 
like feminism is traditionally um, been a, a striving towards equality through the lens of female empowerment in a society where we seem to be moving away from these gender binaries and being more inclusive how do you see the future of empowerment generally and perhaps uh, working towards ending the notion of toxic masculinity how, how do we how what's do we the future of that yeah how, so what's the future of the movement yeah that's a really interesting question um so we, so I do, I'm part of a group called Resist and Renew, and we do like workshops and um, t uh, classes in schools in London. And we went on this weekend away a couple of weekends ago, um, where we took, there were a bunch of like kind of 30 of them, and they're all sit formers, and they're all studying politics. And um, quite a lot of the boys, I'd say maybe like most of the boys were really worried about feminism. Um, and I don't know if anyone else is a, a teacher here or works with young people, but like there seems to be quite a rising trend amongst like young men. Um, and they felt like feminism was really stripping away their agency and their voice. And they felt like, um, you know, for them, they struggled in lots of different ways. Like some of them were struggling with their mental health. Um, some of them, they weren't white, so they were kind of experiencing racism. A lot of them were working class, they were experiencing poverty. And they felt like feminism as a movement had really taken away their own experiences. And for some of them, they kind of reacted in a way of actually going more sort of the other side. Um, and one or two of them got quite into like kind of men's rights activism and kind of all of this like slightly grubby, grubby stuff that goes on online. Um, and I think that matters for kind of what you're saying, because I think when we build a kind of feminism, um, we do need to incorporate like and an include like men or cis men, people that are born as men, um, because actually the patriarchy hurts all of us and it does hurt men as well. Um, so, yeah, I think, I mean, for me, I, like, I'm an intersectional feminist, so I think we need to take into consideration other forms of oppression, um, but it needs to be a feminism that includes men and talks about how the patriarchy hurts men. There's another book which has come out at the same time as mine, which I really encourage you to get, which is about masculinity by JJ Bowler, um, which I think he came in a couple of weeks ago, yeah. Does that answer your, yeah. It does, thank yeah. you. Um, so any questions or comments, please just raise your hand and I will run around. So one at the back and then one here. Sorry, uh, sorry I've got two um, points or questions or something that you can discuss. So yeah. the first one was about abortion. You had one slide on that. And is there something in the news today about Northern Ireland and the law Sorry, changes? Sorry, I can't actually hear you. Sorry, is there, was there something in the news today about Northern Ireland's abortion law changing today? Yes. Okay. I, I, would, I actually haven't, I haven't read it, but okay. maybe, yeah. If, if no, I don't else, know. I was yeah, going to ask you if you knew more about it. No, oh, no I, I don't really know that okay. much about it. Sure. But no, maybe no, someone thought, else in the audience yeah, maybe. does. Um, sorry, my second question or point was, um, I've got a cousin who's got two twin daughters who are now four years old. Yeah. Um, they're non-identical, so you can tell them apart straight away. And they're very different in their behaviours. Now, I don't want to offend anyone here, but one of them is very girly. She loves yeah. her princess dresses and all that sort of thing. Um, and the other one is very more boyish and aggressive. I wouldn't say aggressive, but more assertive. And she loves Spider-Man and she keeps saying, I'm a boy, I'm a boy. Yeah. And for me, it's fascinating and it's going to be very interesting to see how they develop because they're both experiencing the same things in their lives yeah. from family to nursery to everything. So the fact that they're so different mentally, obviously physically they're different because they're not identical, but mm -hmm. in terms of the, their behavior. So I don't know if you've seen anything like that in your studies or research or anything like that. Yeah, I guess it's like kind of, as you said, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think we all remember, or I certainly remember the moment where I kind of started to realise like the gendered expectations that we all have. So I was quite a tomboy when I was growing up. 
and I used to wear boys clothes I used to love kind of climbing trees and playing sports and I wasn't for a long time I wasn't really interested in kind of typically sort of girly things and I remember the moment getting to secondary school and kind of starting to think about what how I was supposed to be and how I was supposed to act and I think we know like these gendered expectations or the binaries of gender um, really hurt. we know research shows that they really hurt people so they massively impact people's self-esteem and their mental health um, so yeah I think it's it's important to yeah to encourage and nurture like young people and to allow them to be the people that they want to be um, yeah it'd be interesting to see what happens to your to your niece are they your nieces or yeah yeah Um, my was just looking at this interest. I was just wondering about your reach when you've kind of gone and done those kind of workshops in sex education across the country. It's interesting from your quote from the student who was talking about learning about online and the Me Too movement and those kind of influences. But obviously, as I'm sure you're all aware, like the, the, we talk about that poverty gap and those differences. But those young people who don't have the same access to the internet, they don't live in big cities, they don't have the same like physical presence of protesters and seeing those things, just looking at what the impact of if you'd spoken to young people in those situations and if their responses were similar. Does that make sense? Do you mean like class and class so inequalities? Like the, yeah, the or? gap between the knowledge, the knowledge bank and the knowledge access that, that the class has because they don't yeah. have necessarily the access either financially due to like smartphones and not being having them or yeah. cultural differences due to not living in a big city where there are so many opportunities for protests and for sharing mm. platforms and evenings such as this. And if the knowledge gap was there, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that does make, that, that's actually, it's really interesting, I've never thought about that, and that's not something I've ever really observed. So the woman that we interview, I interviewed there came from a really working class, kind of Bangladeshi family, um, and yeah, most, most of the kids that I've done work with are quite like working class, and still kind of very present online. I don't know, because I know you were saying you've done, you've you worked in schools, do you, have, do, is, do you notice that kind of poverty gap between... I guess, like, from speaking to teachers, I think resources come into question when it comes to, like, time that teachers have to dedicate to this stuff. Um, so if you're working in a school which doesn't have much money, where maybe where the kids are struggling, um, you know, as a teacher or teachers that I spoke to, a big priority will be, you know, getting, getting the grades so that those kids can have their GCSEs so that they can get a job. Um, and, you know, making sure they're on the right tracks and if they don't have a supportive family, making sure they get that in school. And then there's not necessarily enough time and resources outside of that to talk about consent or to talk about, you know, trans rights or these issues. Um, whereas if you're at a school which maybe has more resources and more time, and then I, I've, I think there's more space for, for young people to be taught by the teachers, or, or they can simply even afford to bring external facilitators in, which on the whole, I think studies show that young people prefer to have external pe people coming in. Because when you're talking about like porn and sex, these are quite embarrassing topics. You don't necessarily want to be talking to your kind of 40-year-old male teacher about your periods. <laughs> um, I was just wondering about sort of talking to young people, and this is something, so I um, teach consent workshops, and one of my favourite exercises to start sessions with to sort of to kind of make me look cool and not a teacher, uh, and, and to, to sort of relax things is to break down what the word sex means and what different people think of it. So you get all the kids in the classroom on a big sheet of A3 to write down um, every sex act they've ever heard of on a sheet of paper. Hilarious for the teachers afterwards. Um, 
but one of the things I found a little bit challenging on how to respond to the last one is these sort of like urban dictionary sex acts. So the kind of things that I don't think anyone's ever actually done. Um, but there's lots of phrases and stuff for them. Because, I mean, there's a few that I'd never heard of, so we, we looked on them after the session. And they range from the sort of, like, almost grotesque and ridiculous. There's a lot of things of putting food up people's bums a lot. But then some of them are incredibly violent. Right. Uh, and the boys sort of talk about them in the same breath. And I was just wondering if you'd come across this and how people had discussed it and tackled it because I think because they're talked about in the same way so and one of them you know was involving uh punching a female partner in the nose so she bled and that was part of the the joke mm. because they're reading about them in the same place sort of link them as they're, they're both funny and no one would do it just if you've had any if it's come up and how people have talked about it and broke that down mm. That's a tricky question. I guess, yeah, this consent is kind of the cornerstone of, of all of this, really. Um, which, yeah, I mean, there's a couple, like, there's a couple of things here. Con like, consent is the cornerstone here because, you know, if it's like some of the stuff you were saying, like, if that's if that's done non-consensually, then that is sexual violence, that's sexual harassment, and that's rape, and that's not okay. And young people need to be taught about that. Um, and then I suppose um, the other thing is the more consensual acts of like sexual, like sexually violent acts that are consensual. Presumably they've learned about them from porn. Um, and yeah, this is really, again, it's a topic that a lot of teachers feel uncomfortable to talk to young people about. And it really helps having external facilitators coming in to kind of discuss pornography and discuss the unrealistic expectations of it. Um, but my, my experience was that and particularly when I interviewed all these young people, is that most young people are learning about sex from porn. So in the absence of sex education, they go to porn to learn about sex. And that's where things can go wrong because pornography isn't sex, it's a performance. It's, it's like, it's, it's an acting, people are acting. Um, so it's when they're using pornography as a, as a means for sex education that you get people saying stuff like that and not really being able to discern what consent is and what non-consent is um so yes yeah, so just much much better sex education across the board i think and talk without shame and embarrassment is really key i don't know if this has been your experience when you've been in schools but so many so many people feel really embarrassed to talk about this stuff so um i was just wondering so i kind of work in the education sector but within kind of outreach and science outreach yeah. and there's a big push towards kind of co-creation and kind of going out and interviewing different communities and kind of groups and seeing what they really need and then going forward with that rather than giving kind of different communities or groups what you feel they need so I just kind of my question is what is or what have you seen as the most innovative method of sex education or kind of education on any of these topics that you've kind of almost novel in the way it's been done and kind of you've been kind of impressed by and how it's been done? Good question. Um, there's a really, so in the, in the changes to legislation, legislation um, they did a kind of, um, there was lots of focus groups they were asking like commu different communities and young people and different organizations what they wanted to be on the curriculum 
And there was one group that was set up, um, and the name has gone from me, but I'll remember it when this is finished, and I'll tell you. Um, and it's run by this 19-year-old. Oh, it's called Teaching the Talk, Teaching the Talk. And um, she's collected, kind of a little bit like me, but much, much more extensive, all of this um, research from young people about what they want on their sex ed curriculums. And she's compiled it in this kind of big, she's basically drafted up her own curriculum. And it's based on all this research from these young people. And she put this in a kind of big package and sort of presented it to the government or the legislators and said, you know, this is, you know, screw what everyone else says. This is what young people want to learn about um, and presented it to them. And some of it was taken on board and it still exists online. And it's a really, really amazing resource. And she kind of goes and teaches teachers. And I just think that that's such a, to kind of avoid all of this stuff as well that I've spoken about, like the history of sex education and how it can be so tied into some of the more um, uh, like problematic politics of the age. Like go and ask young people, what do they want to learn about? Listen to them and then educate them. So I think that's like probably one of the coolest. Hello. <laughs> um, so I do some research in sex education, but in Saudi Arabia. And um, so I'm just finishing up some papers and I'm looking at um, the effects of religion and culture and how they um, affect sex education. And I was really interested in the slide that you had about Birmingham and um, the backlash and the protests that were happening and how they linked it to Muslim communities. And you mm -hmm. were saying how um, a lot of yeah, Muslims are very tolerant of, of gay rights, but the effect of the religious speech by religious leaders can also have an effect on the way young people um, shape their beliefs and attitudes. And I was just wondering, you know, what your experience was um, mm. through their views about the effect of the religious discourse and the religious leaders and how they, if they were taking that and if it was conflicting with sex education information in school. Yeah, I think um, I think the the point here that I want to make is that um, it's not just Muslim communities or Muslim religious communities that are kind of critical of the changes to sex education, and it's actually many other different like religious communities in the UK. So the church, for instance, was quite involved in forming this new legislation, and they've brought abstinence in as one legitimate form of contraceptive so but yet it's Muslim communities that we're fo that are focused on continually in the media so I think like yeah this kind of displays like a, an Islamophobia um, but definitely I've so some one of the schools that we, I've been working with is kind of 95% Bangladeshi they, they live in a school in Bethnal Green which is like predominantly Bangladeshi Muslim community and yeah, they've been very, very affected by like some of the views of their kind of religious leaders and their families and their communities. Um, de like absolutely, definitely. But I think you know we're all in different ways. We're all influenced by the values of our families and the values of people around us. Um, and that's the role of the school. And again, when we spoke to these young people and said, "Oh, do you want a sex education? You know, how would you feel if your parents took you out of it?" Because now. The changes mean that you can your parents can take you out up until the age of 16 and all of them without fail said no no we really we want sex education we want our teachers to teach us this stuff because otherwise where are we going to learn it 
And it's their young generation and they recognise that the world has changed and, you know, lots of their friends are gay, lots of their... They might be gay, you know, so... Hi, I um, co-founded a social enterprise called Outspoken Sex Ed, oh, yeah. and the premise is about the fact that parents are the missing link in their children's sex education. And I'm wondering what you learned from the young people that you talked to about the kind of role they wanted their parents to play in sex ed, and what you yourself feel about how parents can try to talk openly with their kids at home. Good question. Um, I mean, I, I believe that like schools should be the place or other institutions or communities should be the place that people are taught about sex education, that it shouldn't just come from parents. Um, I, it's, it's so, I mean, part of the reason why is because it's so loose. So some people have a really brilliant sex education from their parents and they talk about it very openly with them and other people don't at all. Um, so, it, I mean, I don't know if that's your experience as well. It really depends on kind of person to person, which means there's very little consistency. Um, but I think there's resources and there's things that parents can do. There's books that parents can buy. There's kind of places online that parents can look to. I suppose organisations like yours. Um, but yeah, I think my experience speaking to young people was that their experience were very, very varied from person to person, which makes it all the more important for other kind of organisations to step in. Hello, um, so I work at a sexual health and wellbeing charity called Brooke. Oh, yeah. um, it's a sexual health charity for young people. And we run different sessions in um, schools, uh, universities, organizations. And we've worked with a number of schools who have got us to come in to run parent sessions, which have been really effective because it, it uh, kind of reassures parents about what their young people are or their children are learning about and gives them the opportunity to ask questions um, and remove any doubt about um, potential explicit things that we might be showing them, which yeah, is yeah. rubbish. Um, but that's really, really important because I think it is um, essential to have parents and carers involved in that conversation um, and see what kind of things the new curriculum is bringing in. Do you find that parents are learning stuff that they didn't know about sex? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also it's an opportunity for them to learn. Um, just, just for them to learn about it as well. Hello. Um, I just wanted to say that I have had such a fear all my life of becoming pregnant. And I think that I realise now that you've shown me those slides. Like when I was at school, I've only realised now, when I was at school, I used to always be taught like sex meant that you were going to have a baby and <laughs> contraception just didn't work. It's like 99.9. Yeah. And it's really interesting because I've never, I've never been paranoid about getting STIs from unprotected sex, but I've always been like, you know, like using a condom just because I don't want to get pregnant. And, yeah. and that's it. It's just my main fear, pregnancy. And now I realise, yeah, it's definitely because of that. But um, that was just something I <laughs> wanted to say. Um, but the other thing um, that I just wanted to ask is that there was a lot of um, stuff in the news relatively recently about um, the HPV vaccine for yeah. um, for young women. Um, and I, I had it in year eight. And I remember some of my friends, you know, their parents didn't let them do it because they thought that it would mean that we were going to become, you know, suddenly really interested in sex and want to have sex. And I don't know if you've come across that, like with, with young people not wanting to have the vaccine because maybe, you know, if, if they think like, oh, well, maybe, you know, they're going to um, become more promiscuous or it's going to encourage them <laughs> to get involved in sex when they shouldn't. 
I don't know if you've like so that was young young other young people that were saying that or yeah so like I don't know like just just from some of my friends saying that their parents didn't want them to get the HPV vaccine when we were in it was year eight that I had you got three vaccines and some of my friends said that their parents didn't allow them to have it and at the time I couldn't really understand I've been really lucky with parents that are really open about these things but um, I don't know if you've come across that in schools now in secondary schools whether whether the HPV vaccine has had an effect on like sex education I don't know if anyone else in the room I, I haven't the same. seen that but maybe so, there's someone else has actually yeah. Yeah. my yeah. mom didn't let me have the HPV vaccine and I do have HPV and it developed it was quite severe I had a cancer scare about five years ago and uh, I'm 33 and that was really really terrifying um, like to have a cervical cancer scare it was awful and um, I spoke to my mum about it obviously and she's now like really progressive you know <laughs> since I came out um, but yeah it was it had a really dramatic impact on my life and I think if she could go back then she definitely would but she was just doing the best and you know the only information that she had was from the Catholic Church so you know it's yeah it's like a generational sort of hopefully we each get better each time yeah sorry someone else Hi, um, I work in health, I'm a doctor, and I see a lot of people, older people, with sexual problems. And I've always felt the messages for young people are very negative um, around sex, that it's going to be this terrible thing that you get pregnant and that you're going to have an infection. But there's not much emphasis on the pleasure of sex, and a lot of women I see um, don't actually know how their bits work or haven't been felt that they've got permission to actually get pleasure from their own bodies. And I'm hoping that getting the discussion going might enable women to feel a bit freer about, um, get rid of some of the shame around the pleasure of of sex. And that actually, I see a lot of people where the marriage is uh, perhaps non-consummation, people, you know, trying for the opposite for a pregnancy, but actually not being able to have sex because of such fear. So I really hope women in particular will be empowered because I've always thought men's bits they just hang there on the front it's much easier for them to see women's are a bit more (laughs) difficult to find and difficult to work Um, so I hope that the message will be more positive around Mm. sex um, as well as more intelligent about all the other parts that that make sex but just the basics of how it works and how your own body works and being okay to touch it I hope that's going to change I think when you, again, when you look to the history of it, um, and when you when you recognise that these big pushes in sex education have often come about as a result of some kind of moral panic or fear, whether it's like teen pregnancies or a kind of spike in STIs, like in the, after the First World War and also in the 80s, you realise that like the sex education programmes are often based on kind of fear and prevention and shame, and then also. You know, we live in a patriarchy where women's, women's pleasures and women's bodies have been marginalised and oppressed for hundreds and hundreds of years. So, of course, the sex education is going to reflect that because that's that's the society we live in. So, it's so like these conversations have to go beyond like the classroom. Um, and I really hope it's going to focus on the pleasure and all of that. I I wonder. I guess that again comes down to the teacher. And the <laughs> that basically was what I was going to talk about. Was that. I find it interesting, even in this environment, that that's the first time we've said the word pleasure. And I think it's not only important for the women, but for, uh, well, if we're thinking of cis cis men, for them to explore pleasure in lots of different ways and the pleasure you can feel when somebody else is feeling pleasure as well. Mm. So that's not really a new point, but yeah.
No, it's a good, important point. Thank you. Um, yeah, I actually did a research project on teaching pleasure in sex education uh, in England, and yeah, I mean, there's so many points I don't really know <laughs> where to start, but I think teachers are quite scared to cover the topic. Um, I mean, obviously it's embarrassing, like you said, to talk about sex generally, but there's a sort of, you're protected when you start talking about it from a safety perspective. Yeah. Um, so yeah, teachers are nervous about it and don't know how to cover it. And also it's so much about their own background as well in terms of what sex education have they had and what are their own personal experiences because they're bringing their own background in when they come and teach a class and a lot of that could be a religious background that is very anti-sex and anti-pleasure and then on top of that you also have the scientific side of things that when you're only teaching reproduction and like prevention yeah. and STIs you're only ever going to talk about well first of all you have like you'll talk about erections and ejaculation and for girls there's no alternative I remember like when we were we all went to school together yeah. and when we were at school we would be split into girls and boys and the boys were taught about erections and oh, wet wow. dreams blah, blah blah and we were taught about periods um and there's just it's not like they're talking about pleasure when it's about the boys but it's it's insinuated yeah. whereas for girls there's just nothing about it and all of the scientific diagrams of the female reproductive system it's all internal and so, I mean, that's mm. why young women don't know what's going on because like, <laughs> there's just no imagery which actually shows something like, oh, yes, I recognize this in myself. This is what I have. And like the clitoris is like left out so much of the time or it's just everything is internal. Mm. Um, yeah, I've been blabbering. I'm just going to stop. No, it's interesting <laughs> that they split up the, gen the two sexes and two genders because, I mean, firstly, we know that gender is not binary and neither sex is not binary either. Um, but also these are topics like menstruation that every, everyone needs to learn about this, you know? Everyone needs to learn about fertility. Um, but I think they still do that in a lot of schools. Um, so I was just wondering on that same subject, the research you mentioned uh, where somebody had actually asked school children what do they want, did that, yeah. was that one of the things that was talked about pleasure? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm. So it's called Teaching the Talk. Okay. So if you check it out. Mm. And it's yeah, run by this like amazing nineteen year old woman who yeah, she's really cool. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. We've probably got enough time for maybe one more question. Um, Tara, I just want to make the point, I teach sex ed in a middle school. Okay. Um, in the middle school we've got like forty five different nationalities, so um, for 15 years it's been a dance of respecting the diverse cultural and family values that come into the classroom. Yeah. And um, teaching about pleasure is a slight step too far for our school, I must admit, um, much as I'd like to. We've introduced discussions about pornography with right. some great training from um, Bish. And um, we talk about consent and, and other issues like the circles of human sexuality. You know, words like intimacy, which half the kids don't, don't recognise and don't know about. So it is possible. I mean, I, I, we, we have, it's, it's taken a long time to build parent trust in me as, as the sex ed teacher. Um, but I think to break through the parent barrier, I mean, there are some cultures where it's very normal to talk about pleasure for any partners in a relationship. And I see that um, within our mix. And there are others that would call for my head if I, you know, dared talk about it. So um, I think. RSC becoming mandatory is a huge step forward. Yeah. Um, 
there are some fantastic resources available, but the thing where we really need activists now is getting teachers trained. Because yeah. I've been practising for years and yeah. first started, you know, with my own kids um, and then just thought it was so important I had to get over my own, not embarrassment, but awkwardness yeah. and, um, and realising that for some of my students, I'm the only adult in their world who can talk honestly and upfront with them about it. But... I know there are teachers and on, on our staff, I would never discuss the stuff that we talk yeah. about in class because they would die of embarrassment. So we really now need the government to in, be investing huge amounts of money in yeah. training teachers because um, contrary to what most people think, you can't just give it to a PE teacher and you can't just give it to a science <laughs> teacher and, and have them teach it and do it well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Have you done Bish's handshake workshop? Yeah, we had him for another event that I run. Um, yeah, Bish UK is like a sex educator based in London, and he's Planet, brilliant. Planet Myth versus Planet um, Earth right. is the pornography stuff. Ah, oh, okay. Um, 13, 14 year olds. Yeah. And it's, it's terrific. Yeah. Um, also, he's, written, he's co-written a book with Meg John Barker. Which is Just, also Justin Hancock. Yep, yeah, Justin Hancock and Rachel Barker have written a fantastic book together um, about rewriting the rules. Yeah. Oh, that was just <laughs> Meg John. Just, okay. Um, and then yeah, the two of them released a book last year. Oh, cool. But yeah, I do a lot of sex activism. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned about the sixth form males who felt that feminism was depriving them of their voice. Yeah. I'm just curious about what they'd heard about feminism and from whom and why they felt like That's that. Good question. I think from a lot of their peers, um, from a lot of the like young women who were like at school with them, um, really confident, kind of empowered young women who were talking about feminism, who were really clued up on on what it was, and really kind of in charge of their own bodies and themselves. And I think they had felt, I think probably they felt challenged and threatened by them in part, but also. Yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly which websites they've been reading and which, like, YouTube bloggers, but they've been watching a lot of stuff online. Um, I didn't ask them, like, exactly what it was. But, yeah. It was, yeah, it was slightly, slightly worrying, really. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> that's, uh, thank you so much, everyone, for contributing and for just listening, and that's a really lovely Q&A. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming here today to speak to us. Um, I hope you all managed to pick up a copy of the book. Um, and also, I would be remiss of my duties as a trustee if I didn't mention that you can become a member here at Conway Hall for £35 a year. Um, I think we do discounts as well for um, if you're on a low income or if you're um, a pensioner, all sorts of things. Um, so, yes, please do, you can sign up on our website, but it means that you get to come to talks like this for free. Um, this is part of our charitable objectives, which is to promote free thinking um, and sort of progressive thinking uh, in Britain. Um, but we inspire people all over the world. We get so much amazing fan mail. So if you can support the work that we do, it'd be really, really wonderful. Um, the next talk in this series is gonna be on the 27th, um, the, Sunday the 27th, um, with uh, David Robert Grimes talking about the irrational ape. That's uh, a new book that he's written. Um, thank you once again uh, for coming in today. That was really, uh, really, really illuminating. Um, so. <laughs>
And he's, his book is amazing, so you should all go and check it out as well. How can we get tickets? Uh, Facebook, I think. <laughs> cool, thank you so much.